Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We are in tonight Leviticus 23 through 25. And if you'll notice on the outline and our schedule, uh, between this week and next week we will be done with this study in Leviticus. Uh, tonight we're returning to the sacrifices, specifically festivals and uh, the Hebrew Jewish festivals. And then next week we will have a brief conclusion as we kind of see uh, where the Lord leaves the people with these instructions before it goes into the book of Numbers. Um, has everybody learned something in the book of Leviticus? Before we did this study on, on Leviticus, how many of you had ever done a study in Leviticus somewhere before. Good. Our northern friend Elliot, the only one. <laughs> Did, um, well, yeah. Let's just, congratulations on getting through Leviticus. There are no body parts or discharges or anything tonight or next week. So <laughs> you made it over the hump on all that, all that stuff. But I hope even in all that bizarre stuff, maybe something you've never discussed at church before. I hope that you saw its relevance to the gospel and the relevance it had to the people of Israel at that time. When we come to Leviticus 23 through 25, we are, if, as you're looking at your outline, we are returning to the theme of sacrifices, but we're returning them to them with the theme of sacrifices with the addition of the seven Hebrew feasts or the seven Jewish festivals. And one of the things that, that I loved about the study at the beginning of this section is a reminder, as number one says, that in the ancient world, seasons set the calendar or set the cadence for life. The daily rhythm and cadence of life from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, and as we're going to see tonight, generation to generation was marked by seasons, specifically for the Hebrews, what we would call spring and autumn. And of course they experienced winter and summer too, but for whatever reason, God in his providence put these, puts these feasts and these special seasons only in spring and in autumn, and we'll see what those festivals are later. And we live in a pretty agrarian society, as we did in North Carolina, and as we did even in Florida when we were there. And uh, so different crops everywhere we went, but agrarian societies, you know what it means to live with the seasons. There's harvest season and there's planting season. In Florida, you know, there's two harvest seasons for the citrus, and there's a harvest season for this here, and we know some of our folks just uh, are busy, busy when it's cotton harvesting season. So we're, we're familiar with this a little bit, but think about when the entire society around you all together is an agrarian society that lives on uh, the harvest and the planting of crops and livestock and everything else. They knew what it was to live their lives and to schedule their lives on the rhythms and the cadences of the seasons. Worship calendars then 
because all of life revolved around the seasons, worship calendars revolved around the seasons. And so not just for the Hebrews, but every ancient religion, even European paganism, as we would call it, uh, what used to exist in Britain and everywhere else, big deals made about full moons and the equinox and the seasons and the changing of the seasons. Even to this day, pagan religions still center around that, as did the Hebrews. We're going to see that uh, later today. But entire worship calendars for religions and worldviews were based around these seasons. For Israel, though, this was not a call to worship the sun or a call to worship the moon or a call to worship nature itself. Rather, they used, by God's instruction, the seasons and their worship calendars to remind them about what God had done. Specifically, this was a reminder of their exodus. Every festival, all seven festivals, feasts, the seasons themselves, the harvest, the planting, the reaping, it all reminded them of God's care for them and their deliverance from Egypt. This also helped to anchor their entire lives in worship. You think about if your society itself is based around these seasons and these feasts. If you're a Hebrew, there is no secular society. There is the theocratic society around you, the camp, the tabernacle. And your whole life and the life of everyone around you is based on the sacred holy feast. Now, they knew they would have sojourners and strangers in their land that would not believe the same things they believed, but those people that came into their land were expected to respect what the Israelites believed and how they practiced. And so we can't really wrap our minds around this. Just think, think for a minute, if, if everyone in the United States, or just in our town, if everyone in our town observed Christmas, and it was about what it was supposed to be about, and everyone observed Easter, and it was about what it was supposed to be about, if that was an entire societal thing where life itself stopped to remember the birth of Christ, or life itself stopped to, to, to remember the resurrection of Christ, that's what these feasts and these festivals did for the people of Israel. The whole nation revolved around these things. Uh, there were no opting out of these observances, or quite honestly, you might have been killed. There, there's no opting out of these observances for those people. So the entire life and their worship revolved around these seasons and these feasts and the festivals. So let's just jump right into them. First of all, we see that God arranges for them a weekly calendar. There's a weekly calendar. Look at chapter 23, just the first three verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. All right, so there's the thesis. That's what we're going to get into tonight. What's the first one? Well, it's not a holiday that comes every year. It's not a monthly thing. It's a weekly thing. Verse 3, Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So there was a weekly holy day, not just an annual holy day, but a weekly one that we know as the Sabbath. And from the very beginning 
in the law that God gives them at Sinai, fourth commandment, right? You shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And there's the restriction from labor and various types of labor that God delineates later for the people. But this is a weekly holy day. They don't have to wait for it to roll around every year. Every six days is a Sabbath. And notice how God calls it a day of solemn rest. And not just rest, but it's a holy convocation, a coming together, that there's special worship and special praise that goes on on the day of the Sabbath. How is the Sabbath to be observed? According to verse 3, the primary thing we see is rest. Rest. Now, it's important when we, when we think about the Sabbath and the law. Remember, it, come, it comes up in the Gospels when the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are getting on to Jesus and his disciples because they're picking grain and eating it, right? They're walking through the field. The disciples are picking grain and they're eating it. And, and the religious leaders, you know, in all of their hypocrisy say, aha, you know, your, your followers are doing work on the Sabbath. And what, what work are they doing? They're picking grain. And Jesus reminds them, you've got, you got this backwards. It's not man that was made for the Sabbath, as if this is some sort of restricting, uh, legalistic kind of thing that's meant to harm mankind. No, Jesus says what? Sabbath was made for man. So the emphasis, according to the Lord, and according to this very verse here, the emphasis of the Sabbath is not what you can't do, although those are there. What is the emphasis? Rest. It's a day of rest for the people. It's supposed to be seen as a gift for the people, not a burden for the people. And that's what Jesus was reminding the religious leaders of his day. So if you ever run into folks, and, and there are various Christian groups that will uh, emphasize the Sabbath, Seventh-day Adventists would emphasize the Sabbath, and um, not just that you shouldn't do work on the Sabbath, but that we've got the Sabbath all wrong, and it still should be Saturday. So Seventh-day Adventists go to church on Saturday, and from Friday sundown till Saturday sundown, they observe uh, a pretty strict Sabbath in terms of not going anywhere, doing work, and those kind of things. And not to mention uh, Jewish religion, uh, Jewish sects that are still alive today. But even, you know, some evangelical Christians have gotten into this. Uh, and even if they don't observe it on Saturday, they'll observe it on Sunday. And they'll insist on not doing certain things on Sunday or Saturday. And you may hear them talk about you shouldn't do laundry or you shouldn't cook or you shouldn't do yard work. There might be some interesting principles to talk about there in terms of setting aside the Lord's Day for worship and for church. That's true. But anytime someone comes at you and, and attempts to make the Sabbath something that's restricting and binding and is a burden, they've got it all wrong. And they've got the point screwed up the same way the Pharisees did at the time of Jesus. The Sabbath was to be observed as a day of rest, a gift to the people. All right, so that's the weekly calendar. In six days, God created the earth. On the seventh day, he rested, and that set that tone every single week, remembering God in creation and remembering his deliverance of them into rest. And then we come into the annual calendar. And this is, this is the main chunk of what we'll talk about tonight. From chapter 23, verse 4, all the way through 24, verse 23, we see that there are seven festivals. There are seven annual festivals. In verses 4 through 5 of chapter 23, the first and probably most 
famous, I'm not going to say the most important or prominent, we'll see that one in a minute, but definitely the most famous, I think, is Passover. In verses 4 through 5 of chapter 23, you see this. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you, you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Uh, so if you're, if you're writing some notes there beside these festivals, Passover was the first month, the 14th day, and the first full moon, which we would call the spring equinox. This was called, of course, Passover. And if you want a scriptural reference for that, it's Exodus 12. This is going back to Exodus 12. You know the story. The final plague. This was the, the nail in the coffin for Pharaoh. God said, I'm going to come down and strike all of Egypt. Strike down all the firstborn. And of course, if you put the blood of this lamb on your doorpost, the death angel will pass over your house. And of course, Pharaoh's son died. It was enough for him. He finally relented, let the people go. That was the last straw. The people were released, at least temporarily, they were released uh, to go to the promised land. So that was, that was the, the monumental plague that freed the people from Israel, and they called it Passover. So that's what that was about. Immediately following Passover, the seven days following Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if Passover is the first month and the 14th day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the first month, same month, and it begins on the 15th day. The reference to this is Exodus 13, verses 3 through 10. Specifically, the people being released to go. So Passover is specifically about that night and Pharaoh relenting and letting them go. Unleavened bread is a reminder that they were to have, un remember, have unleavened bread. They didn't have time to let it rise. Have your, your, your sandals fastened and your belts on your waist. Be ready to go. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds them of. So Passover reminds them of the actual night, the sacrificial lamb, the death angel, and their release. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread for that week reminds them of how God led them out of Egypt. The next one is called the Feast of the First Fruits in verses 9 through 14. Uh, a little lengthier. We'll, let's just read this together. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is Leviticus 23 verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. On the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, there's that again, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with, with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And uh, my footnote calls a hen about four quarts, or 3.5 liters, so a quarter of that. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So it was the day after the first Sabbath of the harvest. 
And, and this might vary, not very much, but it might vary because it dealt with the first barley harvest. The first time that the people were able to have a whole sheaf in the harvest, that was when this festival commenced. It was to be brought to the Lord. You remember the priest waves it as an offering to the Lord. It's offered as a food offering. Going back to those sacrifices we looked at at the beginning, remember the pattern is a food offering, pleasing aroma, food offering, pleasing aroma. Remember that? This is in that vein. And then the wine is to be offered with it. This is a festival of thanksgiving and praise for the harvest that God has provided for the land and for the people. And they bring their first fruits, the first fruits, not waiting until the end, but just as they were to bring the best of their livestock, they bring the first and the best of their crop to the Lord. Next is the Feast of Weeks. You might put in parentheses under it, Pentecost. Seven weeks, Pentecost refers to 50 days, seven weeks. Seven weeks after first fruits. This was to be accompanied with a grain offering, and it was the end of the wheat harvest. But there was also a special event that was attached to Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And that event was what Leviticus is about. That event was in Exodus 19.1 when the people arrive at Sinai. That is what is commemorated at the Feast of Weeks. Yes, it's the conclusion of the harvest. I want you to remember all these terms. It's going to come back later. First fruits, harvest, reaping, bringing in. And then it's also a commemoration of when the people arrived at Sinai. What happened at Sinai? I mean, first of all, God gave them the whole book of Leviticus. All the festivals, all the instructions, the book of Leviticus. But what pivotal event, specifically in Exodus, happens at Sinai? Picture Charlton Heston up on the mountain. The covenant is made, but specifically, what is given to the people? Ten Commandments, or we, we would just call it generally the law. The law is given to the people as Moses brings it down, written by the finger of God on two tablets of stone. The law. God speaks to his people. And then goes into further discourse about that law. And then in Leviticus, he's speaking to the people about how to worship him and how to approach him. So all that's kind of wrapped up in, in the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, or Shavuot, as you would say uh, in Hebrew. Then there's the autumn festivals. Okay, so four spring festivals, three autumn festivals. The autumn festivals consisted of the Feast of Trumpets. This is the seventh month and the first day of that seventh month. Feast of Trumpets is uh, described for us in chapter 23, verse 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel in the seventh month on the first day of the month. You shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Feast of Trumpets. No, no specific events tied to trumpets. Again, you see a food offering, it's thanksgiving, it's worship. The trumpets sound a reminder of God's presence with his people. 
Now we talked back in chapter 17, or chapter 16, sorry, about the next feast, the Day of Atonement. So if you want a little more description on that day, and remember how we said the whole outline of Leviticus is centered on this day. And so while we have all the descriptions of these feasts at the end of the book, remember how God shows the centrality and the importance of the Day of Atonement by taking it, not just a brief description at the end of the book, but a whole chapter at the center of this book, and really at the center of the whole Pentateuch is the Day of Atonement. You find that in verses 26 through 32. We won't read those because we've gone over that. You can go back and listen to that lesson. It is in the seventh month on the tenth day. If you're paying attention, trumpets is seventh month, first day. The day of atonement is seventh month, tenth day. Again, around the equinox, not of spring, but there in the fall. And then there's the Feast of Booths the last and probably the most lengthy that you have described here in chapter 23. This is a, a feast that lasts for seven days. Again, beginning in the seventh month. Here's three feasts in one month. And it begins on the 15th day. Let's just read a little bit about the Feast of Booths. Or you might call it the Feast of Tabernacles. That's another name. That's what a tabernacle is, a booth, a tent, a place to dwell. Starting in chapter 23, verse 33, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days, you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you will give to the Lord. Again, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of uh, boughs, boughs, boughs. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. Deck the yeah, boughs of holly. Boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. For seven days in the year it is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Watch this. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, tents built near behind their house, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. Now when God says I made the people dwell in booths, it kind of sounds like a punishment. You remember I made them, when I made them live in tents for a week? Now, the, it's actually reminding them of the Lord's provision for them. When they came out of Israel and began in the wilderness, God says, remember how I became their dwelling place. I enabled them to live in tents and booths, and I myself was their shield and their leader. So that's a reminder, not a punishment. I made them live in tents. It would be a punishment for us. Go live in tents for a week. In fact, it's interesting, when we, um, at our Bible college, the one that Jessica and I went to, uh, 
in Nashville. It's not in this location now, but where it was previously was just kind of this neighborhood in Nashville. Uh, you would just think it looks like a regular neighborhood, and then on a few blocks were these random buildings that were our Bible college. And on the corner, really of the, all the same property, on the same block, on the corner was um, a Jewish synagogue. I think it was pretty conservative. I don't know. I know that they would hire students from our Bible college to come turn their lights and their air conditioner on on the Sabbath so that they would not have to, of course, do the work of turning the lights on and, and operating the air conditioner. So the people that got hired to do that. But also, during tabernacles, every year, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, they would have kind of this all-night deal for a whole week in their little courtyard there. Um, it was kind of funny because we had our chapel and our little common area of our little conservative Free Will Baptist College, and then there was literally this high wall between us and the synagogue on the other side. So we were like the court of the Gentiles, and they were in the court of the Jews over there with their feast and their booths. And uh, it was interesting because they still observed this. And even many liberal Jews will still do this in their homes. Um, we'll build a tent and go outside and live. Didn't you work for, you work for us? They didn't do that. They didn't care. They were non-worshipping Jews. Uh, but still, some will build booths and tents in, their, in the backyard and live there for a, a week to remind themselves of this. Again, an Exodus connection. Remember, when I brought them out of Egypt, how I made them to live in tents and booths, a reminder that the Lord was their dwelling place. Now, we didn't read all of the feasts. Uh, I read the last, uh, some of the last three to you. But if you were to go back and count, you could answer this question. How many festivals are intentionally solemn. And it is those last three, the autumn festivals, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of uh, the Day of Atonement. Those were the three, and you saw that word in there a couple times, solemn feast, solemn rest, solemn convocation, a holy convocation. That is to remind the people that this is a time for fasting. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, it says they're to afflict themselves, which would usually mean fasting and abstaining from uh, dressing very nice and, and probably have a sackcloth and ashes and later practices, so that afflicting themselves. Why? As a sign of repentance and mourning over sin. And that was those last three. Whereas the first four are what? Worship, praise, thanksgiving. And so you see, not only in the seasons of earth with summer and winter and spring and fall, but in the seasons of life and the seasons of the soul with God, there are times for mourning, times for repentance, time for lamenting sin. But then there's also time for rejoicing and time for praise. And God is at work in all of that. So often I think in Christian worship services, and I've talked about this with Jessica in, in different circumstances in our life many times, um, so, so often in worship services, not here necessarily, but in, in the evangelical churches in general, there's this just obsession with just happiness and joy. And if you don't come into that worship service with a big old fake smile on your face and clapping your hands and going crazy, then the worship leader is going to get on to you and say, what's wrong with you? God's people are invited into God's presence in all of the seasons of our lives. If you just, just a cursory reading of scripture, you see psalms of praise, you see psalms of worship, you see psalms of thanksgiving, but you also see psalms of lament and psalms of sadness and psalms of sorrow. 
And I think what we've, we've tended to do in worship services and evangelical churches mainly is to paint over people's sorrow and people's hurting and people's sadness. And we expect them to come into the worship service with sort of a mask on. And if they don't, well, we kind of think, well, they're not being spiritual. Or they're, being, they're, being, they're complaining. They're being bitter. They're angry. God invites his people to worship him and to praise him in all the seasons of life with all of the seasons of life. And he proves that here by providing these feasts. Some are happy, some are joyful, some are loud, some are solemn, and some call for repentance and some call for lamentation. So uh, just a little plug there for what this means for Christian worship. In chapter 24, we see two sections of what I called signs, a sign of promise and these, these warning signs. I don't think that's what the study called them, but that's, what, that's where I landed. In chapter 24, uh, verses 1 through 9, we see two things. The Lord, let's just look at it, chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And he shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. So what could this mean? What is, what is this promise? What is this sign of? That there's to be this perpetual burning light in the presence of the Lord. What now? Yeah, they had lamps, but more specifically, who was the lamp? Who led the people, cloudy pillar by day, fiery pillar by night? Oh, the Lord. And so this shining light, this burning light, this continually burning there in the tabernacle, represented the presence of God as the light to his people. And it was to be kept burning continually as this visual reminder that God was present with his people. And we have another thing of this, another prong of this in verse 5. You shall take five fine flour and make twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, so every week, every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the... And notice that it's a holy portion for him out of the Lord's portion. So whereas the light that's burning continually in the tabernacle represented the presence of God among his people, the bread represented the people's presence before their God. And so here in these two beautiful symbols of promise, God says, I am with you as your God, and you are with me as my people. Isn't that what he said from the beginning with the, with the, the covenant? I will be your God, and you'll be my people. You're my people. I'm your God. You belong to me. I belong to you. So those are those two signs of promise, immediately followed in chapter 24 by two warnings. 
You'll see in verses 10 through 16, we won't read it all, verses 10 through 16, the punishment for blasphemy. Now, this is where it comes into someone coming. Let's say, now an Israelite woman's son, verse 10, now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. So we have someone who was born to an Israelite woman, but who was raised, it seems, in part by an Egyptian man. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. They were fighting. And the Israelite woman's son, son of the Egyptian man, blasphemed the name, that is, the name of the Lord, and cursed. So what did God tell him to do with this guy? You're to bring him out in the presence of all the people, and you're to stone him because he has cursed. And not just cursed, but he has cursed the name. That's a stand-in for Yahweh. He has cursed God himself. So these foreigners, the exiles, the strangers, the sojourners, the pilgrims, whoever it was that would be in the midst of the people of Israel, although it wasn't their customs and it wasn't their worship, they were to respect what the people of Israel did and what God commanded them to do. And in this case, when this person blasphemed God, he was killed for it. And God says this is actually to be the pattern. Verse 16 Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name Yahweh, he shall be put to death. You say, man, we go from God's presence with his people and our presence with him to people being stoned. (laughs) What is God saying? Remember the first half of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength as Jesus summarizes it. What does that mean? Have no other gods before him. Don't make graven images and bow down to them so as to worship them. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How do you summarize that? Love and worship God. And so God institutes this severe punishment for those who blaspheme his name so as to what? so as to safeguard his holiness and the holiness of his name in the camp. So what do we expect the other prong of the warning to be? If Jesus said the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the second command is like to it, what is that? Love your neighbor as yourself. And in verses 17 through 23, we read this. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Now, we hear eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and that often gets taken out of context, and I think people think it means or refers to personal vengeance and revenge, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This, was, this is within the context of a law-abiding community. This is not personal vengeance, vigilante justice, to be taken out by somebody who just says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. No, this is the law of the land. And someone's put on trial for killing someone. Someone's put on trial for taking someone's animal or doing some harm to someone physically. And this is the punishment that is to be rendered to them. And again, people get it backwards, don't they? They hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They think violence, vengeance, revenge. But what is at the base of this? The second table of the law. 
And if the first table of the law is to love God, the second table is here. Love your neighbor by respecting his person and by respecting his property. So God gives these promises. I'm with you. You're mine. But that comes with responsibility. You're to regard my name as holy and you're to love each other. So those are the two warnings that follow. So we have the weekly calendar, the Sabbath. We have the annual calendar with the feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, day of atonement, and the feast of booths. And now we come to the even bigger picture, the generational calendars in chapter 25, verses 1 through 55. In addition to a Sabbath day, there was to be a Sabbath year. Look in chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the... Wait, who shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord? The land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. This is interesting, isn't it? The Sabbath was made for man. Here God also provides for creation. And some differ on why the Lord does this, but, and far be it from me to speak anything about farming, but apparently there is wisdom in letting the land fallow. Is that the word I'm looking for? Uh, so as to recoup, nutrients to recoup, and so on, so that the next round will be even more fruitful. And some say, well, that's what the Lord's doing here. Maybe, either way, it's interesting to see that this is not a Sabbath necessarily for the people, though it is, but they're kind of the byproduct. God says this is a Sabbath for the land. This is a year of rest for the people, and it's a year of rest for the land. So we've gone from week to these festival over, festivals over seven months. And now we have this every seven year, whole year Sabbath of rest. But it gets even broader than that. The seventh Sabbath year was an entire year called Jubilee. So seven sevens and then you have Jubilee. Basically, every 50 years, there's the year of Jubilee. You have six years, Sabbath year, six years, Sabbath year, six years, Sabbath year, seven times, and that seventh, seventh is the year of Jubilee. And let's just read what God says about it briefly here, starting in verse 8 of chapter 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, and weeks there means Sabbaths, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the seventh day, on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, 
nor gathers the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee that shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field that is in the wild. In this year of jubilee, you shall return his property. We'll go on to delineate uh, some of these other things that happen there too. The year of jubilee, interestingly enough, if that Sabbath year was this Sabbath for the land, the year of jubilee was a time of economic reset. A year of economic reset. Specifically, people's debts were erased and property was returned. People's debts were erased, maybe property that had been held as uh, collateral or some sort of payment were returned. And it says people returned to their homes, people returned to their land, people returned to their original clans. So there's this whole, every 50 year, generational reset of the entire economic system. Not just for the land every seven years, but now for the people all the way down to the economics of Israel. So there in verse 9, it's interesting that this begins, commences on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement. Just doing a little bit of my math correctly, it was those first four festivals that were within, well, three festivals within the first month of the year. And then you had weeks and first fruits that followed that first, those first festivals. The Day of Atonement is in the seventh month of the year. So it, if I were God, and I'm not, but if I were God and I was wanting to say, okay, we're going to kick off a new year, year of Jubilee reset, makes sense, January 1, right? Or whatever they would have considered the, the, the new year, the first month with those opening festivals. So why does God wait until the seventh month and the autumn festival, specifically the Day of Atonement, to start this year of Jubilee? Well, what else to remind the people about what true liberty is, which is not economic debt being forgiven, which is not physical property being returned, but to have liberty with God so that their sins are erased, their debt to God is canceled, and all of their goods and their blessings are returned to them. And so God says, I'll tell you what, you know when you're supposed to start this? That central day in Leviticus, the central day of the entire law, start it on the day of atonement. And why not make a spectacle of it? Blast the trumpet and declare that this is the year of jubilee. Debt is erased. Property is returned. People go home. And then just wrap all that up in the day of atonement and what it meant for God to cover the sins of his people so that they could come into his presence so that he could continue to dwell with them and they could continue to dwell with him as their God and as his people. And God says that's what all of this is a picture of. Lest you begin to think it's just about the land and about economics and a better checkbook and less debt. It's about your sins being forgiven and having peace with me. So let's do what we've done every week and let's ask what is the big picture Number one, the whole calendar, if you haven't noticed, the whole calendar is designed 
around the Sabbath and its promise of rest. The whole thing revolves around the Sabbath, from the weeks to the months to the years to the generations. This pattern was repeated weekly. The pattern was repeated annually. The pattern was repeated generationally. Now, y'all know me by now. I'm not one to get bogged down into numbers and little hidden codes and, and secrets and things. It is, however, worth pointing out that there are seven festivals all within the first seven months. There are seven weeks between first fruits and the Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Weeks, first fruits and weeks. There are sevens everywhere. At the very least, you see a pattern of seven introduced at creation, don't you? Six days, the Lord worked and created, and on the seventh day, he rested. Not because he was tired and needed to sleep, but to show the completion and the fullness of his work. And so not only is creation itself bound up in that rhythm of seven, six and seven, six and seven with Sabbaths, but the people of Israel were to revolve their entire calendar and their entire worship life around the Sabbath, the seventh. And so every time you turn your, your page in Leviticus on these festivals, it's the seventh this and the seventh that, and there's seven festivals in seven months, and there's seven weeks between them, seven days each. And this, everywhere you go, there's sevens. And at the very least, let's just leave it at this, there is completion, there is wholeness, and there is a bigger, broader picture than just the nation of Israel. The whole system is designed to center around the promise of rest, not just on a weekly, yearly, generational scale, but on an eternal scale. God is pointing to eternal, cosmic, universal rest for his people, but also for creation. There's a whole study to be done there that we can't do tonight. But just, just go read Romans 8 and think about what this means for creation, that God provides a Sabbath year for the land. And in Romans 8, it says all creation is groaning out under the fall. And creation itself will be redeemed when Jesus returns, as we will be as his sons and daughters. There's a lot of interesting stuff there that I'm going to have to stop tonight. Eternal scale. The Hebrew calendar reveals the God of creation who demonstrates his goodness in seasons. Interesting that when Noah and his family come off the ark, there's this repetition of the blessing from Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So you kind of see this repeated creation thing. You know, again, we could go crazy on this, but I'll keep it simple. And Genesis 1 uh, the, the earth is without form, and it's void. And what does it say? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, or the abyss, or the waters. Isn't that interesting? And then God begins to create. So what happens at the flood? It's all wiped out. It's all abyss. It's all deep. It's all water. And what happens? But a new family emerges, 
And God tells them the same thing he told Adam and Eve. Now go, be fruitful and multiply. But he adds something different. He says, these seasons, these seasons I've established for you. And then God builds on that when it comes to Leviticus and the institution of these feasts and festivals in the seasons that God says are part of his good and gracious and beautiful design for creation. These were a constant reminder of God's past and present faithfulness to his people. They pointed to their past because they all pointed to the Exodus, Passover, God bringing them out, God providing for them in the wilderness. But they also pointed to the present because not only did God bring us out of Egypt and he's taking us to the promised land, but he's also providing for our daily needs through the harvest, through the planting, through food, and through sustenance. God is still faithful to provide for his people. So it's this constant reminder of what he has done and what he is still doing for his people. I don't have time to turn to each of these, but when you turn to John's gospel, John pretty much frames his entire gospel on these feasts and festivals. And you can see on your handout all the references. But it seems like every time you turn the page in John, before something big happens in the story, some miracle, some healing, some teaching from Jesus, before those I am statements we've been looking at in our, summer, in our spring studies, it seems like every time you turn the page and something like that's about to happen, John always tells you up front, now, it was the feast of Passover. Or now, it was the feast of dedication. Or it was the feast of tabernacles. He's always framing what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying, and even those I am statements, framing it within the context of these feasts and these festivals. And so if God's work is revealed to the people of Israel surrounding these festivals, when we come to the New Testament, we see that God's work of redemption is centered around Jesus. And so rather than focusing on the feasts and the festivals, John wants us to focus on Jesus. Je Jesus wants us to focus on Jesus. So when it comes to the last day of the Feast of Booths, and the ceremony is taking place where they take the water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple, they pour it out before the Lord, what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you water to drink. Rivers of living water coming from within you, Jesus says. What's the purpose of that? All these feasts, all the ceremony, all the stuff, Jesus is saying every step of the way, this is all about me. God was rooting his work in those feasts. Now God is showing us that his fruit, his work is rooted in Jesus and his rest. Jesus is therefore revealed as the one who brings God's rest to God's people. In that same passage where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You remember how Jesus ends that whole dialogue that gets him into some serious trouble? He says, for the Son of Man, Jesus, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about Jesus. And Jesus is our Sabbath. He is God's rest for God's people. 
Jesus is revealed as God's deliverer, because that's what all the feasts were about, right? God's deliverance through Moses. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is revealed as God's sacrifice, because what's happening at every festival? Something's being killed and offered to the Lord. Jesus is the Lamb of God that's slain for the sins of the world. And Jesus is our liberator. That year of Jubilee that freed the people from their debts and everything they owed, Jesus is the one who comes to liberate his people from the debt we owe to God. There are different views on the Sabbath and what we should or shouldn't do on Sunday. Is Sunday a new Sabbath? Did the Sabbath change to Sunday? Do we have a Sabbath anymore at all, or is it something new? I think the more and more I think about it, I land here, and you're free to disagree, that's fine. I don't think Sunday is the Sabbath. I don't think that it was meant to become this new replacement for the Sabbath. I think it's a new thing that the Bible calls the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. It's not a replacement of the Sabbath. It is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Uh, Think about it this way. Let's just do the last point and then I'll do that. (laughs) It's a day of worship centered on Jesus' resurrection. And a new day in God's new creation. So think about it this way. Now I'll do this. (laughs) Six days of creation. God rests on the seventh day. Done. Right? And that is creation as we know it. But in God's new creation, we just went through the the themes of Holy Week. Just like there was a week in creation, there's this week, there we go, there's this week called Holy Week, in which God was not creating the earth, but was doing his new creation through his son Jesus. And what comes at the end of that, when Jesus says it is finished, on the evening of the Sabbath, Friday before the Sabbath begins on Saturday, what what happens except Jesus is entering his Sabbath rest from all his work? There's a finality to the new creation that Jesus brings through his cross and his burial. But what happens on the first day of the week? It's a new day. John emphasizes as the sun was rising on the first day of the week, Just like God in Genesis 1 says, let there be light, there's the dawning of a new day and a new light when Jesus rises from the dead and we enter into God's Sabbath through Jesus. Now that was a lot, but you can handle it. When we look at these feasts, look at these festivals, um, the one that stands out the most to me, honestly, is the Feast of Weeks. And if you'll just bear with me for a minute, I just want to hit on that. The Feast of Weeks is the Feast of Pentecost. And if you remember in in Acts 2, it's the Feast of Pentecost that's going on when the Holy Spirit comes. Right? Pentecost. All the Jews were in Jerusalem, just as they had been for Passover when Jesus died. Fifty days later, they're there for Pentecost. What happens? Holy Spirit comes down, the gospel is preached, 3,000 people get saved and brought into the church. It's worth noting that the day of Pentecost, if you remember the Feast of Weeks, was about what? When the people arrived at Sinai. What happened on Sinai in Exodus 19? Remember? Fire, 
clouds, lightning, thunder. What happens on the day of Pentecost? Mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire that sit on the apostles, the disciples' head, the 120 in the upper room. What happens in, at Sinai? The Lord speaks, and the people can't come near to him, and they can't even bear to hear the sound of him speaking. What happens in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit himself indwells the disciples, and they begin to proclaim the message of God to people. And the message isn't like it was at Sinai, stay away or you'll die. The message is now, come here and you'll live. At Sinai, what happens? The Lord writes the law on pillars of stone, gives them to Moses. What happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and writes the law, not on tablets of stone, but on our very hearts. And so all of these wonderful pictures come together when you begin to look at these festivals. And again, we look at this and we say, what does all this mean? What does all this have to do with anything? Study your Bibles more. Get into the New Testament and see how everything is framed around these days because it's showing that what all that was pointing to has come through Christ. What all of that was pointing to has come through the giving of the Holy Spirit and the church. I don't think it's a sin for Christians to observe the feasts. I don't think it's sinful or wicked or somehow wrong for Christians to go to things that observe the Feast of Trumpets or Tabernacles or whatever. Not wrong. But my question would just simply be why? Why would we do that when we have the fulfillment of all of that in Jesus? We can go and do the the costumes and the trumpets and the whole thing, but why do that when you have the fulfillment and the reality of it all in Christ? Why do it when we have the Lord's Day every Sunday? Why do it when we have the Lord's Supper right there for us to remind us of what this is all about? Paul says in Colossians that if you want to stay in the shadows, you know, stay in the shadows. But the call of the gospel is to come into the light. Come to the substance, which is Jesus. Moses would readily say today, yes, that's what it was all about. And so as we read Leviticus, as we conclude next week, hopefully each week you've been reminded of that. This is all about Jesus. It's all about the cross. It's all about the resurrection. It's all over the Bible. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be together and to learn, to study. I ask that you send us from this place with your blessing, with your mercy, and your peace. Thank you for Jesus, who is the sure fulfillment of the law, who brings us into your presence by his own blood, who pours out his Holy Spirit and writes his law in our hearts, and then enables us to believe and to obey. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the reality of the cross and the resurrection that gives us new life. We praise you and thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.